Good morning. So good to be with you today. Welcome to everyone in the venue and here in the auditorium. Welcome to everyone who's watching us online at carneyefree.com. My name is Adrian, and I'm the lead pastor here. Just one of the pastors, really. Um, that's my title, but we have a great, great team at this church, and it is a joy to work with all of them. Thank you for being with us here on this Life Group and Care Ministry Sunday, as noted already. A number of different ways you can learn more about Life Group and Care Ministries right after service today in the lobby, and uh, we'll be talking about that a little bit more as the service cut continues on. We began this mini-series, Better Together, four Sundays ago, as we just felt this need to interrupt where we were going with our First Peter in the Pressure Cooker series. That was a, a great series, and we're coming back to it next Sunday. We'll be back in the pressure cooker. And so if you want to do your soap note study, you'll see at the bottom of your outline for next week the passages out of 1 Peter 4 that you can study. But we interrupted that series for these five Sundays for this purpose. We recognize that we're in a time in these COVID-19 days that people are just incredibly lonely. And people have been missing community so much and I can't think of a need in our community and really across our nation that is greater than entering into community again. And we're so thankful, though, that we as a church got to get to meet here, but we also acknowledge that this is just the beginning meeting here on Sunday morning. And so we started off the series, I just want to do a little, little bit of review about before we get into today's message, uh, started off the series with um, kind of our shaping values at Carney E. Free. And this comprises our discipleship pathway. I asked the question the first Sunday in this series, what is it that my church really would program for me to do such that I could grow spiritually? Like how? There's a million options. How would they have me grow spiritually? And we communicated to you these four different ideas that we want to seek truth and embrace the gospel here on Sunday morning. Those two things, Sunday morning or Sunday evening services, seek truth and embrace the gospel, but then join the mission as well and then choose community. And about 30 people over these past several weeks have joined the mission of some kind of area of service downstairs with kids, Wednesday night with youth, leading a life group, helping out with tech ministries. 30 or so over these past weeks have joined the mission. And joining the mission is oftentimes the best way also to choose community. Another way, of course, to choose community, as we're talking about here today, is entering into a life group or a care community of some kind. Uh, from there, we really narrowed our focus over these past weeks on how we are better together and how we would choose community. And we noted the second week of this series that community is formed when we value diversity over homogeneity. And homogeneity is just a big word for uh, we like to be with those who believe the same thing, who look the same thing as us. And we interviewed Stan Parker and Pablo Dominguez on that week of the series. And we talked about the, this fact that we truly are better together in spite of our differences. That we have primary things in Jesus Christ that bring us together, amen? We have secondary things that we can discuss and we can learn from one another. The third week in the, this series was, uh, actually that was the third week, Sorry. I've forgotten the order of things. The second week in this series was that community is formed, friendship is formed when we practice empathy, encouragement, and exhortation in that order. And we just noted that week that sometimes we like to launch into, or we were taught, at least in my generation, I was taught to launch into accountability partnerships, but that's not very motivating for most of us. Instead, if we enter into friendships that are based on empathy and encouraging each other, and then we can guide each other. 
then we can exhort each other. When someone launches in with exhortation or accountability or guidance and you haven't earned friendship yet, we tend to shut down. But when we develop friendships though that are based on empathy and encouraging each other, building each other up, then over time we're also able to exhort each other and move together more and more toward the destination of becoming more and more like Christ. Then finally, last week, Pastor Jordan led us in a really important message. I thought it was a superb message that he gave to us in which he noted this big idea. Community is formed when we embrace the gospel and we choose to be vulnerable about who we are. Yes, also vulnerable about who we were in the past, but even more than that, who we are today. Because every one of us is in process. None of us has arrived at our destination of becoming like Christ. So we choose to be vulnerable about who we were, the areas we've stumbled in the past, and who we are right now as we are still moving toward Christ along with others in community. And we do that as we continuously embrace the gospel for our lives on an everyday basis, then we grow together in community. It's a critical message because I don't know about you men, but most of us men were taught that vulnerability equals weakness. Nothing could be further from the truth. When you make a vulnerable step toward another couple guys in community, that's a move of courage. That's a move of strength. And it says to those guys, it says to those ladies in your community, I want you to know me. And I want to know you. And when we see that, we recognize it's rare. We recognize it to be a step of courage. And so we don't feel repelled by that. We feel like drawing near to that person who's taken a strong, courageous step of vulnerability. I pray that would be true in our life groups. Today, the title is Community Over Superficiality. And my big idea this morning is simply this. Community is formed as we fast from the many in order to feast with a few. Community is going to form for us as we fast from the many in order to learn to feast on a continuous basis with at least a few others. Now across this series, what we have not been doing is telling you what we want from you. If you've been coming here the past five weeks and you say, oh, the church just wants me to be in a life group so they can boost their stats. No, that's not it at all. We're not talking about what we want from you. We're talking about what we want for you. Because what God wants for us is to be known and still loved. God wants us to actually be known and still to really be loved. When you're fully known and genuinely loved by other people, it stimulates what Susan was talking about in that video. It stimulates joy. It stimulates hope. It gives us a greater sense of peace in life when you're fully known and fully loved. Now, to be sure, if we have a church that's made up of people in strong biblical community who are embracing the gospel and moving toward Christ with at least a few others, that will make our church stronger, no doubt about it. I'm not afraid to say that in the least. That will make our church stronger. We have a strong church. It would be a stronger church if all of us had great community. But that's not why we're preaching this. Why we're preaching this is because this is what we want for you. We recognize that we are emotionally cut off in this world today 
Because in many cases, we don't have real, authentic, biblical community. And that goes against God's design for us. God designs that we would be better together. So with that, turn with me to Exodus chapter 17. And you'll find Exodus 17 after the book of Genesis, the first book of your Bible. The next one is Exodus. And Exodus is the account of Israel getting released from the bondage of slavery in Egypt. And God does a mighty work, a miraculous work for the people of Israel. And they get out of Pharaoh in Egypt and they are wandering through the desert for some 40 years as they're awaiting the reward of the promised land. And we'll pick up the story there, Exodus chapter 17. You also see this on the screen if you haven't yet found it in your Bible or your app. Exodus 17, verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord your God to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and so they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Like, we've forgotten that you just used your staff to part the Red Sea by God's power. That just, we forgot about all those plagues. We forgot about what God did for us to release us from the bondage in Egypt. Why don't we just go back there? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? I would never say that. I love you. They're almost ready to stone me. Thanks for not being ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Verse eight, the Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out and fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. Listen real carefully to these next couple verses. As long as Moses held up his hands... The Israelites were winning. As long as he held up his hands in prayer and praise to God, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and they put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword." Let me just ask you, would you be stronger if you had a couple people like that in your life? Would you be stronger if you had a couple men like that in your life? Would you be stronger? Yes. <laughs> Thank you, brother. Would you be stronger if you had a couple ladies like that in your life? Yes, we would. We'd be stronger if we had that. 
Now, I know that is rare. I'm not making light of that at all. I know it takes a long time to get to that. And if you consider entering into a life group today or you have recently, you gotta be patient. It takes time. That's rare. And there are many times in my life where I have not had it at all. And there are other times, like today, where I have a few men who I know are always in my corner and I am in their corner, and when my hands begin to fail, they lift me up. And they make me a better husband, they make me a better father, they make me a better follower of Christ. But I know that it's rare, and I'm not making light of it, and I know it's difficult to find, and it takes time. Christopher Hitchens was known some 10 years ago as one of the leading atheist intellectuals of the early 21st century. He was called one of the four horsemen of atheist intellectuals. And he was known for his vociferous and eloquent attacks on people of every faith, be they Christian or Jewish or Muslim or Hindu, whatever. He was equal opportunity when it came to eloquently attacking people of faith. But in his quieter, darker moments, he was known to say that what he wanted more than anything else was a friend. Bertrand Russell similarly was an atheist who eloquently attacked Christians some 100 years ago and he was known for attacking Christ and attacking the things of Christianity and attacking the church but in his quieter moments he admitted what I need most I am afraid to say is Christian love. Hmm. What I need most, I am afraid to say, is genuine Christian love, as found in real Christian community. Now, that doesn't just happen in atheist circles, does it? Many, many Christians feel that way. What I long for most is genuine Christian love. Could I please get it? And these longings are real for so many of us even here today. Statistics suggest that these longings are widespread across America right now. There's a number of studies though that have been done in 2000, 2000 or in 2020, 2019, and 2018 by the Kaiser Family Foundation and the Cigna Group, these widespread surveys that indicate these realities about um, our culture today. 65% of Generation Z, that's the coming generation, and 65% of millennials report that they always or often feel lonely, 65%. Almost 50% of Generation X and 50% of boomers report the same. They always or often feel lonely. 58% of Americans say that nobody knows them well. 58% say not one person knows me well. Three-quarters of those who are self-described very heavy social media users feel lonely very often. That's compared to 50% of those who describe themselves as light social media users who say they're lonely very often. 75% of heavy social media users, very lonely very often. All of those numbers were up in 2019 over similar studies in 2018, and they're up another 30% in 2020. Because of the coronavirus, 30% of Americans said the coronavirus situation has only deepened their sense of loneliness. I personally am kind of surprised it's that low. 
Most people that I know, most people I talk to would say that these past six and a half months have deepened their sense of loneliness in this world. This is why we are doing everything that we possibly can, both here in the series and over the next months, to help our church move from being lost in a crowd, and the best we can do in this room is get some inspiration on the gospel as we seek truth and get some superficial community, and that's a beginning here at church, but we don't want to be lost in the crowd of this church. We want to be known in community, and because of that, we have dozens of volunteers out here and staff members as well who have been praying and then working and praying some more in the hopes that perhaps some people today, maybe even you today, this would be, this would be the day that you choose community here at Carney E. Free for the very first time. I, I want to just suggest that I wrap up the, this series. What I believe to be the cause, the symptoms, and the antidote to our relational superficiality and our loneliness that we feel across our culture today. We'll look at the cause, the symptoms, and the antidote. The greatest cause of relational superficiality, I believe, is fear. The number one cause of our relational superficiality is fear. It's a fear of what if they actually get to know me and then they reject me, right? Isn't that it? What if they get to know me and then they reject me? I've had a fear across much of my life that I am known by people who don't really love me. They get to know me and then they don't really love me. And I'm loved by people who don't really know me. And so that produces this fear. What if people really get to know me who actually love me, will they then reject me? Anyone else? Feel that? This is a common fear that many of us struggle with. And so we respond to it with these dual actions in which we say, would you please come close to me? I really need a friend. Would you please come? How dare you come so close to me? I mean, who do you think you are asking those questions about my personal life? I just wanted you to get to know me. You know, this back and forth that we do, these dual actions. Why? It's a fear of rejection that might come with intimacy. I want to tell you that you can be known and you can still be loved. The Bible says this, 1 John chapter 4 says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment. Therefore, the one who still fears is not yet made perfect in love. Perfect love casts out fear. This, of course, is speaking first and foremost about the love of God for you, that you are a child of God, perfectly loved by him, and that is our foundation, as we just sang about. I stand on the foundation of your love. Your perfect love casts out fear, and as we increasingly become friends of God, that we recognize he actually knows us, and he still loves us. Amazing. God be praised. That he actually knows us, and still he loves us, then our fear is expelled. We can be ourselves because we are children of God. And then increasingly, that can become our reality with at least a few friends who know us and still love us. And this is why it's so critical to be in a Christian community with others who are serious about following Christ with you. Because if I look at my brother who is serious about following Christ, I can know based on the scriptures that there's something inside of him called the Holy Spirit of God. 
And that Holy Spirit inside of him can meet up with something that's inside of me, also called the Holy Spirit of God that exists inside everyone who names Christ as their Savior. And the Holy Spirit in you can meet up with the Holy Spirit in me if we are prayed up and we say, God, give me humility. Give me the gentleness of your Holy Spirit. Give me the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control that comes from your Holy Spirit such that this person that I'm interacting with might encounter the Holy Spirit in me and I might encounter the Holy Spirit in them and as a result of that, we could know each other and still love each other. And that's possible. And then fear gets expelled because we understand that this brother, though he ain't perfect, he loves me and I love him wrinkles and all and he loves me wrinkles and all and perfect love can cast out Some people respond to relational superficiality, we know, by looking for intimacy in unhealthy relationships. Some people we know respond to relational superficiality by ginning up their liquid courage and spilling their beans at the bar. And other people, perhaps all of us at one time or another, respond to relational superficiality by going more and more to our phones. I would say the most common response to our relational superficiality today is tech addiction. The greatest symptom of relational superficiality today is technology addiction. Just as a side, on the bottom of your outline, yeah, you'll see a resource, and I won't talk about this here much today, but the very best resource that I've found and that's been so helpful for my family as we have sought to keep technology inside proper boundaries is called The TechWise Family by, by Andy Crouch. Wonderful book written four or five years ago that's so relevant for families or individuals today seeking to keep technology inside its proper boundaries. But listen to a few statistics. I'll try not to overwhelm, with you, uh, overwhelm you with these, but listen to the reality of our technology addiction today. The Center for Disease Control reports that school-aged children are spending eight hours in front of screens each day. American adults are watching videos or TV of some kind for five hours a day. We Americans check our smartphones some 85,000 times per year or once every 4.3 minutes, waking or sleeping, which accounts to, I believe, about eight times during the course of my sermon. (laughs) Discouraging. (laughs) I know you wouldn't do that, though. You wouldn't do that. You'd only check, like, the Bible app while I'm going through, yeah. 82% of teens take their, be- take their phones to bed with them. 61% of parents check their phones immediately after waking up in the morning. We text while we drive, which statistically makes us 23 times more likely to get in a car accident. The average social media and email output today is larger than the Library of Congress. We Snapchat, we tweet, we Twitch, we Instagram, we Facebook, we text, we TikTok. I'm sure I've missed a few. And it wears us out. And the result is this feeling that I have no space in my life. It's this feeling of increased anxiety that there is no white space to quiet me. 
and the anxiety builds, and we still feel lonely, and so we check some more. I heard one story of a young lady named Sarah, 17 years old, and she pleaded with mom and dad, can, can I please have my boyfriend Johnny over for a date, and we'll just hang out, and, and um, we'll have a nice conversation together, and we can be here at the house while you can observe us, and uh, mom and dad had to have a number of conversations with Sarah about that before they would allow Johnny to come over, and then eventually they did uh, relent, and Johnny came over, and mom was watching from upstairs as Sarah was engaging in her date with Johnny, and she watched with amazement as Johnny and Sarah texted each other. Okay, this is the reality of tech addiction. As almost any parent can tell you, the most powerful consequence, the most powerful punishment that you can give to your kids is to take their phone away from them, isn't it? And as almost any kid can tell you, the most powerful consequence you could give to your parent would be taking their phone away from them. Ouch. Boy, Adrian's hurting me today. Now, this is true for all of us. So what are the symptoms of this technology addiction? We have this root issue which is fear, it results in this tech addiction, but what does tech addiction result in? Here are a few of the greatest symptoms of tech addiction. Loneliness, anxiety, and anger. Three of the greatest symptoms of technology addiction today are more loneliness, more anxiety, and more anger. Dylan Smith is a 20-year-old church leader and author and he is a member of Generation Z, the emerging generation. And he says this about his generation as he observes and studies them. He says, one of the biggest issues facing the next generation is a sharp decline in mental health. Here's the strange part. We are all fully aware of the mental health crisis and what is causing it. But our phones are too good to give up. The rewards of the internet for us outweigh the risks. For us. And so many of us, no matter the generation, we're living in a world where we are connected to 500 people but intimate with none. And it's this very strange paradox of 21st century life in which we are more connected than any generation in all of history and we are simultaneously more lonely than any generation in all of history. And so when we are lonely, when we are isolated, we reach for these because we hope against hope that perhaps these would be the portals to finding real community. Now there's nothing wrong with reaching for these. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. There's certainly nothing wrong with reaching for community. Indeed, you are made for community. We are all made in the image and likeness of God. And God himself was forever in community before he even founded the earth. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were in community before he spoke and the universe leapt into existence. So community for us is not secondary, it's primary. We're going to reach for it somewhere. And sometimes this might help us find some community. I personally am grateful that I can use a couple of different social media forms to stay in touch with family and friends from different times in life in Alabama and in California and Oregon and Colorado and in Kentucky. I'm grateful for that. It's a blessing for me to be able to stay in touch with those folks. But if I look for that, 
to help provide an answer to the void of intimacy that I feel, the void of genuine community though that I feel, I'll be sorely disappointed. And the truth is that if I spend much time on Facebook, what I feel is anxious and angry and envious. Like you look at this 30 second commercial of somebody's life and, you know, if I was to show you the best 30 seconds of my life, you'd be envious too. But that's not life. You see this 30-second commercial and you see a super hunky husband and a hot wife and hardworking kids. You say, that's not me. I don't have that stuff. And so you feel more anxious, more envious, more angry. Or you go on Twitter and what you see is a whole bunch of people with a whole lot of keyboard courage who are saying to one another what they would never say to someone if they were looking them in the eyes. I once heard the internet described as just like the real world with all the forgiveness vacuumed out of it. I'm convinced that the more time we spend on social media, on internet news, on cable news shows, the more anxious and angry we become. They all know how to stoke our fires. It really helps me to regularly distinguish between my circles of concern and my circle of influence. These two different circles that we all have. The circle of concern, and these are things that I'm concerned about in our world right now, just like you are. Okay, there's wildfires on the West Coast. There's, you know, anger across our culture. There's poverty. There's all kinds of issues that I'm very, very concerned about. But I can't do much about most of those, can I? I have a different circle called my circle of influence with my family and my life group, a few friends, hopefully what I do here at work, hopefully my neighborhood, and that's about it. And it's in there that I should be spending my time and my energy. And if I'm focusing too much of my time on my circles of concern, then I'll see all these things that I have no control over, and I'll see all these things that are out of control, And then I'll feel more anger and anxiety. Can you relate to this at all? Anyone else? So we focus more and more on our circles of influence that God has actually given to us that we can make an impact in this world for good, even if it's only with a few, because we recognize most of it we really can't change. So let me just talk with you for a moment about a number of solutions here. Just a couple quick solutions as we wrap up. The solution to all of this, in my opinion, if you're to boil it down to just two, is this. We learn to fast from the many in order to feast with a few. We learn to fast from the many, the 500, the 1,000, the 5,000 friends that we have. We learn to fast from all the cable news outlets in order to feast with a few that we actually have influence on. It's a beautiful verse in the book of Proverbs that, capture, that, 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 uh, that captures this so incredibly. Proverbs 18, 24 says, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. There's a friend who sticks closer than a sister. There's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. But the man of many companions, the man of 2,000 companions, oftentimes comes to ruin. 
They were saying that way back in 1000 BC. How much more true today? I wonder, do you have a friend who sticks closer to you than even a sister would stick to you? Like spiritually speaking, here's the truth. Your Christian brothers and sisters will last for eternity. Those relationships with your Christian brothers and sisters are more important than any other identity marker. They're more important than national markers, political markers, racial markers. They're more important than any other marker. Biblically speaking, I'm closer to you as my brothers and sisters than I should be to anyone. That's what the Bible says that we're actually brothers and sisters in Christ, and that lasts, and so we prioritize that. Listen again, Exodus 17. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning, but whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and they put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, the other one on the other side, so the hands remained steady until sunset. What a portrait that is of these two men holding Moses up. I mean, he, he leaves the crowd of the many who are grumbling against him to go away with a few who would be with him when he needed to pray. When others were angry with him, he went away with his couple men who would hold him up in his time of need. We know who Aaron was. Aaron was Moses' brother. He was a brother who stuck to him like a brother. He was there with Moses when they went before Pharaoh and they said, let my people go. That was when they were 80 and 83 years respectively. Now they're probably 82 and 85. And there's Aaron holding up Moses' arm as the leader once again. We don't know as much about her, but he was a good friend. He wasn't a relative. He was a good friend who happened to be the grandfather of a man in the book of Exodus by the name of Bezalel. And Bezalel was the chief craftsman who oversaw the development, the construction <clears throat> Sorry about that. Bezalel oversaw the the construction of the tabernacle. Okay, so uh, her is Bezalel's grandfather. Therefore, he's an old man too. Probably three men in their 80s. The point is this. Moses is a man's man. Wasn't he? Like tough as nails. Strong as can be. Emotionally, as a leader, physically. And yet he never got over his need for genuine community. He always needed a couple men who would be by his side, and so do we. All of us have to learn how to fast from the attention of the many in order to feast with the few. Here's what fasting is. Fasting is temporarily abstaining from something enjoyable in order to awaken hunger for what actually matters the most. And what matters the most? God and people. 
That's what matters the most. So it's God and the people that I have influence over. So I fast from the many in order to focus my attention more and more on God and people. Now classically, people of God fasted over the years from food and drink, something enjoyable to awaken their hunger from God and uh, hunger for God. And sadly, that's a biblical practice, a wonderful spiritual discipline that most Christians have lost today. It's a great spiritual discipline to gain back into our lives once again to fast from food and drink in order to awaken our hunger for God well once again. But it can be applied to all different areas of life today, particularly those that you see exercising too much control on your life. And so if you notice that cable news is having too much control on your thinking, fast from it. You notice video games are having too much control? Fast from it. Social media, whatever it might be, you could fast from it for a time to say, God, would you please, during these next couple weeks, awaken my hunger for you. Awaken time to be with you. And awaken time to be in intimate relationships with a few other friends, which I know that you have made me for. I have a hospital chaplain friend that I'm in a small group with by Zoom, and I chat with from time to time. Her name's Carol, and I was talking with her last week, and she's probably in her mid-60s, super intelligent and very, very gracious, spiritually deep woman. And she shared with me in the group here a couple weeks ago that she is on the strictest of media diets as a chaplain, she constantly gets news as a chaplain. She's constantly dealing with difficult stories. And she said, I am on the strictest of media diets right now. I don't know how my media diet could be much more strict than it is right now because I'm trying to give myself an anxiety vacation. She understands that at least for her, there's almost a one-to-one correlation between her media intake and her anxiety. That for her stokes her fires more than any. I fasted from all media a couple months ago. I recognized that I was getting angry. I recognized that I was getting anxious. And so at least for me, that meant eliminating social media, eliminating radio. We don't have cable news. We don't have any cable at our house. So I don't want to watch much TV, but eliminating all internet, all of it, for two weeks. And during that time, committing myself to two prayers, there was a significant need in my family and a significant need at work. And I just said to God, for the next two weeks, I'm just bathing these two needs in prayer. And at least five times a day, I stopped what I was doing and just prayed over those. And God very specifically answered both of those prayers at the end of two weeks. Very specific answers to those prayers. And as I fasted, I just felt my anger and my anxiety melt. I had more time for God. I had more time for really good relationships that I actually have an influence in. And I was at peace. On the 15th day, I went back on social media. I saw that really nothing has changed. Everything was still the same. So I went back off for another week. And it was a great third week. I'm not putting my head in the sand. I'm now back out into the world, seeing what's going on. I really didn't miss much. I just lost anxiety and anger. And I grew a little closer 
to a few friends and to my God. I wonder if you'd consider the same. I wonder if you'd consider the same. Perhaps there'll be a time here in these next weeks, maybe even this week, that you feel the Lord saying something to you though this morning. You say, it's time for me to fast from the many in order to feast with a few. It's time for me to have the courage to enter into community for the first time, to choose biblical community with a few others. It's time for me to reawaken my hunger for God, spend more time with him as I abstain from other things that have been taking my energy and my time. I'm praying for you that God would give you the courage to take that step that you're thinking about right now, that perhaps we would fast from the many in order to feast with the few and we would realize more and more that we're better together. Father, we ask for your help. We truly ask for your help, Father. We recognize that we are surrounded with bad news all the time. And it pulls us in. And we recognize that we're lonely. And that saddens us. And we recognize that we're fearful of actually being known. So Father, we ask for your help that you would give us the courage to be known. And the courage to know a few others without judgmentalism. We pray, God, that you would help us to really give ourselves to a handful of relationships that really, really matter to you. Where we have some influence this side of eternity. We pray, God, that as we take some real steps toward choosing community toward fighting tech addiction, toward fighting anxiety and anger and isolation. We pray, God, that you would be with us every step of the way, that you would strengthen us on our true identity, that we are children of God, known and loved by you. Help us, Father, as we move forward as a church. We want to be a place where we're better together, and for that, we truly need your help. We will be careful to give you all the credit each and every step of the way. You alone, Lord God deserve all glory for what you're doing in our hearts even now. In Jesus' name.